Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This episode forms part of our mini-series on the sinking of the Lusitania, that terrible event when the enormous Cunard passenger liner was sunk off the coast of Ireland by a German U-boat in May 1915, killing 1,193 people. This is episode three, in which we explore the history of the ship and its sinking. For eyewitness accounts, do please listen to the excellent first two episodes. And there's even more coming. In our next episode, we take you inside the Lusitania Gallery at the Merseyside Maritime Museum in Liverpool. Today, though, to learn about the Lusitania, I speak with historian Peter Kelly. Peter is an Irish-born researcher whose main interests are Irish genealogy and European and maritime history during the First World War. His interest in the Lusitania goes back to his childhood, when he first read about the sinking of the liner close to where he lived, and also discovered that a family friend was a survivor of the sinking. This interest progressed over the years to the point where he now concentrates mainly on researching the lives of all those on board on the final fateful voyage of the Lusitania. Peter is especially interested in communicating with relatives or descendants of those on board the final voyage. So if you have an ancestor on that fateful voyage, then do please get in touch. I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy talking with him. Here is Peter. Well, Peter, here we are sitting on a sitting on a bench overlooking the Albert Dock. You just pointed out some Roman numerals carved into the stones there. What are they for? They were the, the water levels. Um, as the water rose here inside in this uh, enclosed dock, they were able to see what draft or what clearance they would have had. And, um, you know, that's, that must be there 200 years at this stage and yeah. it's still perfectly legible. There's so, there's so much to see here, so much history and, and uh, if you keep your eyes open you can see things that you know go back generations really go back generations it's magnificent you were talking about the ghosts of the past a minute ago go on, tell me about that yeah again. well Liverpool is just one of these cities uh, I mean you look today it's, it's absolutely alive and all this area we were sitting in was derelict for years um, and was in danger of being knocked and redeveloped and thankfully 
uh, wiser heads prevailed and, and they preserved all these um, magnificent buildings and recycled them and reused them and redesigned the interiors and left the exteriors where we could see all the old bonded warehouses. But this was, this was the capital of the British Empire as far as trade went back in the 1800s. London may have been the, and was and still is the political capital, but in the 1870s, 1880s, over 60% of world trade went through the port of Liverpool. Just one single port. Wow. The, you know, the employment here, um, the diversity that came to Liverpool before it came anywhere else. You know, you had Oriental workers, you had African workers, Middle Eastern workers, workers from all over Europe. Um, and you, you talk to Liverpool people um, and their lineage goes back through the Portuguese, the Spanish, the Irish, even the Chinese. Uh, it, it's absolutely amazing. But you, you can early see today the workers, like, like busy little beavers going around about their work. Um, you can imagine them, can't you? Yeah. Yeah, I've got some heritage here. My uh, great, great, great grandfather, I think, was a Mersey pilot. So I should feel at home out on those uh, windswept. Yeah windswept waters. Now let's get to the Lusitania because that's why we're here. We're here for the memorial. There's going to be a service later. I'm very much looking for that. Let's talk a little bit about, about the ship. Well, yeah, the, the ship came about um, by necessity and it all starts with uh, J.P. Morgan, whose uh, consortium still exists today, very powerful in, in the United States and, and world um, commerce. But he was buying up shipping lines in France and Germany and here in, in the United Kingdom. Uh, the White Star Line was one of them. He got the uh, Lloyd German Line, he got the French Line, and he was trying to monopolize um, the, the transatlantic traffic. He could see the benefits of trade with uh, what was then the New World. The Admiralty woke up a, a little bit late. Um, if you think about the old song, Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Well, by the late 1890s, early 1900s, you know, the world was laughing at that because Britain certainly didn't rule the waves. J.P. Morgan was at it. <laughs> so um, the Admiralty looked for somebody to compete and nobody could compete because nobody had the money. So they loaned Cunard, uh, who had a very good name, founded in 1840 uh, by Samuel Cunard and, and a few others, but he lent his name to it. And they loaned uh, 25 million um, on very, very um, favourable terms to build two steamships that could compete with J.P. Morgan, and they were the Lusitania and the Mauritania. Now, because the Admiralty were involved, and we go back, this is where technology passed us out, um, the, the Admiralty had a say in um, below decks, so they, they decided the engines, and they also had to have them constructed in such a way they could become auxiliary armed cruisers. Yeah. So they could have uh, 12 six-inch um, artillery pieces mounted on the decks in case of war. And they were in Jane's fighting ships, that publication. Uh, here we have the Pride of Sefton, uh, a barge, and uh, great to see that too, isn't it? You don't see too many of the barges anymore. No, it's wonderful. Look at that go past. Yeah. And they give us a little wave. <laughs> And, uh, so it was, a, it was a mixture for you know the Admiralty yeah. and, and sort of commercial interest. Yeah, and um, Cunard then were able to, to design the passenger accommodation and the, the dining rooms and salons and all that. So it was a, a mix and gather that it could be converted if need be, but it was primarily a passenger ship. They were built obviously uh, for luxury. Uh, if they had a flaw, 
they were very very narrow so they weren't they weren't um, all that's comfortable in rough seas whereas the liners of the white star line were built wider they weren't built as fast but you had a bit more comfort in them but you had the customer of the day who was either uh, a dedicated Cooner traveller or a dedicated White Star oh. traveller. So they, they, they all had their niche. But if you wanted to go fast across the Atlantic Ocean, the Lusitania, uh, which held the Blue Ribbon for a, a, a period before the Mauritania took it, um, they'd get you to, to New York or back here to Liverpool a day faster a than the White day Star. faster, it's amazing. Yeah, because of the speed. Mm. So whereas there were competitors, there weren't competitors in speed, there were competitors for the service they gave and also speed was one thing, comfort was another. So whichever one you had the time for, you went with one or the would other. Would you be a speed or comfort man? I'd be comfort. <laughs> I'd be comfort, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. View. I like the comfort. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. So um, where was the Lusitania built? Lusitania was built by John Brown uh, on the Clyde and um, it took, it started in 1907. No, sorry, before that, 1906, and uh, it made its maiden voyage in 1907. And um, when they did the sea trials initially, they found that the vibration from the engines was so severe that they had to redesign the stern for passenger accommodation. It, mm. it was it was unsuitable for passengers, so they reconverted that to, to um, cargo, a cargo area. So. Well, it must have been seriously bad for them to say well, you can't was, have anyone down there. Well, these were the Parsons engines, the, the Parsons reciprocal engine, which were pretty new at the time, and, and, and they revolutionised as all these developments went along. These made um, ships powerful, more powerful because of the, their design. They were smaller, but they, they had more power than the bigger engines. Um, they were more easier to maintain, they were more reliable. You never had one of these liners breaking down in mid-Atlantic or anything, you know, they, they were very, very reliable for their day. But made a racket? But they made a racket. Now, the other thing that they changed was initially the Lusitania had uh, three-bladed pr propellers and later in her career, uh, to reduce the, the level of vibration again, they switched that to four-blade. Um, and that's what you can see on the dock over yeah. there? Yeah. They're, one, they're the replacement propellers, yeah. 1909, I yeah. That, yeah. If you look, if you look at the original um, uh, photographs of the, the launch of the Lusitania, you will see the three-blade propellers. And then, like you say, in 1909, they decided they'd replace them um, with the bronze uh, four-blade propeller. Smoother, faster? Not so, much, not so much faster, but more comfortable. Yeah. For, I mean, this is all engineering and physics something that I'm not too well up in, but <laughs> That's all right. well, we'll it, find it, work, out yeah, it works, it yeah. works. It and, worked better. Uh, yeah, it worked better, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so the Lusitania then made um, 201 successful crossings of the Atlantic. All uh, from Liverpool? From Liverpool in New York. So each yeah. voyage... So although she was built at the Clyde, her home's yeah. in Liverpool, which is why we're yeah. here. Yeah, exactly. And this was the home of the, Mar the, 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 the Merchant Navy. This is where all the passenger ships, later for um, economic reasons, they moved on to Southampton where most cruise ships from, from uh, the UK depart from today for America because you're saving a day's sailing, you're saving a day's fuel, you're saving a day's wages. So economically it makes sense. But a lot of the workers here, when you trace the, the maritime uh, seamen from here, you'll find a lot of them move to Southampton with the ships. Yeah. So people move that time with the work, whereas we commute today. It's amazing they took that long to realise those advantages, and Southampton wasn't 
Well, I, mean, I, I suppose the shipbuilding began I here. Th- I mean, there were other reasons for Liverpool. Well, I, I think if you if you walk along here and you see the miles of, of, of dock, and it was sheltered, it was much more sheltered. Southampton was probably uh, more confined. They probably had less space to deal with. But then, um, as trade changed, and they started concentrating on, on various uh, aspects of, of, of trade, passenger trade, goods trade, um, this is where Southampton became place in the, in the 50s. Yeah. And if you're standing in Liverpool now looking across at Camel Laird, you still get the sense of the of the I- immense shipbuilding and, and all of the, the, the huge docks around You here. do, and I, I, I was very um, happy to see recently that Camel Laird now are getting contracts for refitting um, cruise ships again. You know, the, 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 this area needs all, every area needs employment, but here uh, you have the tradition, but they weren't getting the work to keep the tradition going. But now it's coming back again and it's great to see. You know, it will benefit the area. So after all of these many successful trips uh, across the Atlantic, um, it all goes wrong in 1915. Let's, let's go and have a think about what was going on there. Well, August 1915, this war started in Europe, which was considered at first going to be a very short war. It was going to be over by Christmas. Everybody was trying to enlist. Um, it seems like as if the youth of the day thought that this was going to be great fun and if we don't get in quick we're going to miss it and unfortunately we know that it went on for um, over four years but the cruiser rules were very important at the time and these these were rules that went back uh, a number of decades where a warship would um, call a merchant ship to, to heave for to stop they would check the manifest if they found that there was contraband in their eyes going to a belligerent country or uh, they would then um, that's not us we're not we're not drinking and breaking glasses <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, but they would they would uh, allow the crew to, to go off on, on, on lifeboats and they would then sink the ship and its cargo but all that changed um, in early 1915 the cruiser rules were being operated by German submarines but then an order came from Churchill to ram these um, submarines and a number of them that were trying to play by the rules were actually rammed and sunk so that changed everything then there was no warnings being given and this was how the Lusitania came to to be sunk because she was hit without warning and she was just hit uh, in an area obviously that was very quickly uh, turned out to be fatal 18 minutes it sank it um, and it's one of the things when you compare other shipwrecks like the Titanic that often people compare the Lusitania to when you look at the survivors in the Titanic it was predominantly the, the, the first class the more affluent they were given the space in the lifeboats on the Lusitania you had 18 minutes and it was just chaos get, in, get into a boat fill the boat get it down it didn't matter who was in it and um, did they have enough boats? they had enough boats but because obviously the Titanic changed the rules on lifeboats, they had these inflatable boats. But one of the, the, the problems that they had was they found that when the crew were painting the deck, they were also painting around the um, the uh, inflate or the um, they weren't inflatable. They were um, they had these stays, these wooden stays. But when um, when they went to get them off. They were painted onto the deck. They were painted fast. Oh, no. The other thing then was, because of the list the Lusitania took on, um, the lifeboats on the 
port side, the left hand side, were resting against the, the side of the ship. When they tried to release them, they were tearing, they were clinker built, yeah. and the planks were tearing off the rivets going down. And on the other side, then they were out too far. So it was difficult for people to were swinging out too far over the ocean. It was very difficult to get in. And uh, the speed as well. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's like people were trying to design lifeboats and ways of getting off ships without actually thinking about what happened to a ship when it sank quickly. So where on the the Lusitania did the torpedo strike? Torpedo struck, as, as best we know, uh, somewhere just behind the bridge on the starboard side. Okay. Now, this is where the Admiralty design, we can say, was flawed. But we can't really be too critical because that was the design of the time, and that design predated the torpedo. So in those days, all the coal bunkers were what they call latitudinal bunkers along the outside of the ship. So you had a double-skinned hull. And in the, in the space in the centre, you had the coal. And there's fantastic photographs of how they use coal, these ships, bringing um, uh, tenders out with conveyor belts and putting it in the hatch rather than have people shoveling. It was a, a good design in, in, in one sense. It worked. Um, but unfortunately, when the torpedo hit there, they said that these watertight doors, the problem was that you'd build up a coal dust, I imagine, and things like that, and some of these watertight doors just weren't effective. Uh-huh. Also, it happened so fast, that, and the water, seawater started rushing in so quickly that nobody could get to that site to even shut the fire doors or the, the watertight doors if they wanted to. Yeah. So, um, it was just where it was hit uh, and the circumstances, 
and you had a ship that was designed and built from say 1906, 1907 and the torpedo was only a year or two old at that stage so technology had caught up and that, that's the same with us all today. Oh, what about the secondary explosion? What do we think happened there? Oh, there's all theories. Um, Robert, just explain what yeah. happened actually to Alyssa. So there's the, radio strikes. Yeah. There's, there's an explosion, and there's another massive well, one. Well, from the from the eyewitness uh, testimonies we have, people out on deck after lunch and all that, there was a big water spout, and then some moments later there was a second explosion, a rumbling explosion. And people on land, there was a, a man I used to know who's passed away now, George Henderson, was with his family. He was a young boy on the old Hedekin sail. And George remembers seeing the white cloud. So the white cloud would be indicative of steam or some people said it could have been phosphorus. Um, it kind of eliminates to a certain degree the, the, the coal dust. That would have been black cloud. Now, various people have put uh, magnesium, phosphorus and so on. I lean towards the steam pipe for the simple reason that this was not a very, very violent explosion. If this had been munitions, then it would have splintered the ship. You, you'd have had parts of the hull, like razor blades, flying through the air. And the There's idea no of evidence munitions of, being pe people suspecting that it was carrying munitions illegally across. Well, the, is, no, no one really knows. But. Well, no, they, they know. It, it is known. I mean, the manifest is there now, but it's a play on the time. The, the US government forbid the export of munitions, but by having the individual components and not assembling the, the artillery shells, then this was the grey area that you, 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 you allowed. <laughs> when does a weapon become a weapon? So, you know, we know there was uh, brass um, shell casings from the Bethlehem Steel Company. We know there was gun cotton. We know there were fuses. We know there was 3.8 million uh, .303 rifle rounds. But it seems that wasn't war material. But the first thing that would have happened, as it did all through the war, when a cargo ship from America came in here, the shell casings, the fuses, the gun cotton, everything was put on the train down to Royal Arsenal in Woolwich, and within seven days it was on the Western Front because supplies were critical. They really were critical in the Western Front. And it was straight from here by rail, they were given priority down to the Royal Arsenal in Woolwich on a ship over the English Channel, and they were on the front line in seven days. That's what used to happen. But I don't think that it was munitions for the simple reason that if you have a very violent explosion, it's, it, it's going to fracture the metal and you're going to have people um, seriously injured from shrapnel, like, like, like a, a grenade or any of these things. But none of the survivors mentioned that. There was no um, victims recovered with shrapnel wounds like that. And of course, there was also the propaganda that the submarine um, surfaced and machine gunned the lifeboats. Oh, right. That's another fallacy because there wasn't one bullet hole found on a victim or a survivor or a lifeboat. So it's often said that the first victim of war is the truth and that was played on two torpedoes or more. Um, it's generally accepted now was one torpedo and Some most, most people lean towards the steam pipe as being the most logical. Which caused the caused the white cloud? Which caused the white cloud of steam, and it makes perfect sense. I mean, you had these red hot steam pipes with boiling water. You've cold um, seawater rushing in against us, and you have hot meeting cold, very hot meeting, very cold, and you have a, a, a reaction. Yeah, and so and the majority of people died. They drowned. Most drowned, yeah. No, yeah. 
we, we would have to assume that anybody that was in their cabin uh, just above the site of where the torpedo struck were probably killed in the explosion. But the vast majority did dry, drown, although uh, quite a number were also found with injuries where debris hit them as they were in the water. So you had, you had impact injuries, you had uh, trauma injuries from um, debris, uh, mass and so on falling. Um, so you had a mix, but mostly drowning. Drowning was the, 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 the big cause of death there. And I mean, the, the nearest town, did, um uh, Queenstown, is that where, where all the, the, the well, lifeboats and the survivors went Yeah, to? well the, the nearest lifeboat was Co uh, Court McSherry. Now in those days we don't have the, the modern lifeboats, this was, was a, a lifeboat that was powered by ore and the tides were against them so it, it took them How hours. How far off the coast was it? That would be nautical miles, I would say that was about 16, 17 nautical miles but it was an awful lot longer when you were, you were trying to row against the current, it took them quite a long time. So there's still a lifeboat station in, in Court McSherry, but obviously no, it's, it's the modern motorised boat. Queenstown was the um, headquarters of the Royal Navy in the south of Ireland, and the flagship there was an old minesweeper, I think it was built in 1898, called the Juno. But she was slow, and um, the difficulty there was um, they had been on patrol and they were going getting ready to go back out and for some reason they were called back and it's assumed that there was a fear that she'd be sunk by the submarine or another submarine nobody knew how many submarines were out there yeah. and this would be a major blow to the Royal Navy and Britain if they had lost the Lusitania and then lost their, their flagship minesweeper and it was only in Cove because it was um, old technology it had been moved from England over to there We've got another barge going. Yeah, we'll just let him pass the princess. But um, Kinsale was the nearest town and the, and the nearest port, and only one lifeboat was brought in there. And I think three or four victims, four people succumbed to exposure and, and drowning going in there. And the water's still but very cold this time of year. I wonder how long people had before they, they, they started to really quite, suffer. Well, a number of people from their testimonies, they, they, they were in the water for four hours or so. I suppose it depended on your, your, your health and your physique. Um, if you're wearing wool clothes, of course, wool clothing is, is very good even when it's wet of um, insulating the body. Um, but if the victims, if the lifeboats have been brought in to conceal, it's, it, it's a bone of contention, but if the lifeboats have been brought in to, con in to conceal, um, a lot of people think that more people would have survived because quite a number of people died from exposure and various ailments and um, just the cold hypothermia mainly. So we got, there are a few lifeboats which were managed to be launched. Yep. And I mean, I'm assuming there was debris thrown up that people could cling to? There was people, they were sitting on pianos, they were sitting on crates, <laughs> they, were, they were holding on to oars. And yeah. the, the great thing about the oar was, um, there's one or two testimonies where you only survived if you had a partner. Because if you were holding on to the oar at one end, it was going to stick up. Whereas if you had somebody at the other end, oh, it was kind of a balance. It was like a seesaw. seesaw. Yeah, yeah. So it was very, it was very important to get somebody on the other end, and then the two of you would survive. These collapsible lifeboats—that's the word I was looking for. The collapsible lifeboats. Some of them they managed to get up. Some of them they didn't. Um, they didn't manage to tie a few of them together. 
and uh, they did float them, we made a canvas and uh, timber and um, a lot of people survived in that. Various fishing vessels came to the rescue um, and various small steamers and all that and people did what they could and you know they were treated very very well once they got on board they were brought down to the fort down by the, the, the boilers to heat up um, the crew were giving them any food drink clothing that they had and uh, the people of Cove treated them very very well over overall most most survivors will tell you that they were they were, they were applauded coming up the the, the pier um, hotels and houses guest houses everything was opened up to them so everybody did what they could in the aftermath but we're, we're, we're dealing also with um, a lack of understanding of what people were, were suffering from. You know, exposure, hypothermia was treated in a totally different way. Um, nowadays, it can be treated fairly successfully very, if, if it's got very, very quickly. They didn't have the knowledge that time. They were only developing, you know, and that, this always happens and we learn from disaster we learn from mishaps uh, like we said the Titanic didn't have enough lifeboats straight away to remedy that so there was enough lifeboats but the way the, the, the ship keeled over made half of them unoperable and um, it was just the speed of it you just didn't have any time is it well remembered in that part of Ireland now in Kinsale? It is in Kinsale, in Cove. Um, the, the, the new museum being planned for the old head of Kinsale and there'll be a remembrance ceremony there today. There'll be a remembrance ceremony in Cove. There'll be a small remembrance ceremony in Kinsale because that kind of joins on with the old head of Kinsale and in Cork McSherry where the, the, the lifeboat crews still remember it. So it, it, it certainly isn't forgotten. And if you go to Cove, if you go to Kinsale, the old head of Kinsale and Court McSherry, if you've an interest in the Lusitania, you will find something about it there. Yeah. And each has its own little way of, of doing it. So it is well remembered, yes. No, that's good. Well, I think we should go into the museum and see uh, what's, what relics Certainly, survived. Yeah. Let's go and do that. Yep. Many thanks indeed for listening. Now do please check out all of the other episodes on the Lusitania and there's tons more stuff to find out as well if you're interested in shipwrecks or the First World War or just anything maritime. In particular, do please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast YouTube channel where you will find some truly magnificent new things to see, not least the quite brilliant new films on the world's best ship models. This podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research, so do please take the time to check out everything that they've been up to. You can find the Lloyd's Register Foundation's History Centre and Archive at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk, where you can join up to enjoy all of the numerous perks of membership, including four copies of the printed Mariner's Mirror Journal each year, online access to over a century's worth of maritime history scholarship, online seminars, and you can even come to dinner on board HMS Victory. What a treat. <laughs> <laughs>